Well, thank you, Tim. It's always fun organizing a symposium with Tim because between the two of us, uh, we seem to have uh, the most disparate set of views, um, which I think is wonderful. Um, what I'd like to, to cover just before we start is just a few points to bring us up to date. Uh, the first thing for me is that uh, we've seen sort of past, present, and current challenges, and the panel uh, that we have before us is very much going to be looking at uh, future prospects for philanthropy. So that's, that's very much the theme here. I was very impressed with uh, Hugh's five boundary posts, although I must say the first and the last particularly intrigued me, uh, given Paul's presentation, i.e. political economy and this nexus around money. Uh, Tim's uh, presentation I thought was fantastic as well, because he was particularly looking at the world of complexity and the need for us to perhaps look for more uh, risk and failure and piloting and things like that. And then Paul, of course, is talking about efficiently connecting capital and charity, but naturally raised issues to do with profit and risk. Interestingly, about 10 years ago, uh, Ian Harris, Mario Callahan, and I conducted a study called Evidence of Worth. Uh, that study was really trying to look at the outcome measurement of social ventures, uh, the voluntary sector, what have you. And we classified uh, four types of outfit, a communitarian, a service delivery, a changing systems, or an expanding frontiers. These seem to be four different blocks uh, that the voluntary sector fell into. Possibly the best way to illustrate this is to take something like the Royal National Institute for the Blind. So there's a communitarian element where they actually help blind people to realize that they're not alone and there's a wider support community. Service delivery, actually selling them watches and things that they need. Changing systems, where they lobby government for uh, more aid for blind people, uh, more signage, what have you. And finally, kind of expanding frontiers, where they actually conduct research uh, into preventing blindness. So these were the sorts of areas that we looked at. The thing that I found interesting today, of course, though, is when we talk about uh, uh, taking risks or taking chances is a bit like the uh, parable of the ten talents where people have a lot of this money and then a lot of it is directed towards making sure that they don't take risks but hang on a minute I, uh, you know, I, I'm in business so I take risks to, to do that we have a government that does what we all seem to agree is, is broadly the right thing to do but I may disagree with both of those, and I may see gaps. And actually, when I give the money to people, I want them to take risks. I don't want them invested in some safe account. I don't want them accounting for me on the percentage of overhead taken by administration or what have you. I'm actually asking them uh, to challenge the current thing, which I think was uh, the current environment, which I think was the interesting bit I took from Hugh's, uh, Hugh's talk today, that you know, in a lot of ways, the philanthropy is about that activist uh, changing of society, but seems to be kind of bound up in service delivery uh, and uh, wondering whether or not we can do things more safely. So that's, that's where I've gotten to. Um, my kind of theme, though, is that worlds do clash, and with my accent, um, I had to steal a joke from Tim, who very kindly gave it to me, uh, about the uh, apocryphal American benefactor who uh, had given a lot of money here in London, and when he visited London in the city after the war, uh, they decided that they'd have a service somewhat in his honor. And the driver takes him to the Thanksgiving service held in one of the churches, and the vicar gives up and gives the sermon, whereupon the American storms out 
and goes straight into the car and is driving off with his driver. And the driver is sort of, excuse me, sir, but you know, why are you so agitated? You should have heard that guy. I've never been insulted in my entire, so insulted in my entire life. He got up and he said, Lord, we thank you for this sucker from America. <laughs> so, uh, Anyway, worlds do clash, and on the panel today uh, we have uh, three gentlemen uh, from very different aspects. Richard Bennett, who is very involved with uh, Tim's opening about Cambridge, uh, and he can explain that. Anthony Elliott, who is uh, not only leading an initiative that I admire, Fair Banking, but has also done two Nesta reports, uh, both on wealthy giving and uh, financial analysis in this sector. And finally, Tim Jones, who has one of the most interesting ideas on how to break apart some of the funding in this sector. I've asked each of them to keep themselves to two minutes. That is not a couple of minutes, that's two, i.e. 120 seconds, uh, because the idea here is that you, the audience, are going to pitch in and we're going to get a symposium conversation going. So if I could, Richard, what are you taking away from today? Sure, thank you very much. Um, So I I just wanted to, to say a couple of things picking up from today. First of all, I wanted to introduce a context which has been hinted at, but I just wanted to make it explicit. And that is that we are accustomed to talking about charitable giving and philanthropy in terms of scarcity. Money is scarce, and we need to think about how we allocate it. But I think one of the things we've, we've learned today is that we're really living in the context of abundance, and we should be much more willing to think that way. We spend, we waste a, a, an enormous amount in the way that we do things, and so we should think about reallocating that massive pool of waste rather than thinking of our resources as scarce. Um, then one, one of the things that Tim said I, I've, I've been actually everyone's called Tim here today but one of the, 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 the second Tim um, mentioned started with Aristotle's famous quote about um, the, the challenge of effective philanthropy and that just made me think about something which you know, perhaps has been realized it perhaps is embedded in the term philanthropy but perhaps is being more realized in, in contemporary society which is that Actually, there is great joy to be had from giving. And I wanted to, to come back to uh, this, this giving while living notion and the giving pledge that Bill, Gate, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett have been spreading. And I'm particularly drawn to the words of Chuck Feeney, who many of you will know um, made an enormous fortune in, in um, Duty Free and set up the Atlantic Foundation. And I just want to read quickly some words that he said, um, reflecting on his life or his, the, the second half of his life as a philanthropist. And he said, that, uh, he said, I'm convinced that this was a sensible means, this being the establishment of the Atlantic Foundation. I'm convinced this was a sensible means for directing to good purpose a large and increasing wealth that exceeded my and my family's lifetime needs and which I believe would have become problematic. Reflection on the many worthwhile undertakings that these funds have since made possible always reaffirms for me the prudence of this decision. And that goes back to how Tim, where Tim started, started us off. But the, then he goes on to say the process of, and most importantly the results from, granting this wealth to good causes has been a rich source of joy and satisfaction for me and for my family. I think putting the joy into philanthropy is something that I, I think is important to, to contemplate when we think about future prospects for philanthropy. 
And then, just before closing, because I know that there's a stopwatch on me right now, um, I want to return to this, this notion of complexity. Um, because, and, and the fact that a philanthropist acting alone is, is severely constrained in the impact that he or she can have. And w- one of the things that that made me think about is some of the institutions that I do work for, um, and, and Michael alluded to Cambridge University, we, we do work for universities and other institutions to, to try and help them figure out how to maximize their fundraising effectiveness. And one of the things that we're constantly having to do is to convince institutions that they need to look at themselves in their complexity and make a case to the world as to why people should give to them. And we, in a sense, find a sort of bifurcation in institutions. Some institutions just have the attitude, well, why would anybody give to us? And that, that scrutiny needs to, to look at the impact that they're having and the activity that they're doing, and their worth and the value that they're creating. The other institution tends to, to, the other category of institution tends to feel, well, of course people should give to us. I don't need to explain, we don't need to explain why we're good. We just are good. Everybody should know that. And I think it just reinforces to me that the onus on the other side of philanthropy, those who are seeking to play that powerful role as catalysts in engaging and solving some of those complex problems, need to do the explanation, the marketing, however you want to describe it. They need to make the case to the world of potential philanthropists as to why and how they can meet the needs and provide the joy that philanthropy can offer. Thank you, Richard. So not just uh, Paul's concept of addictive, but also fun and joyful. Right. Anthony. Okay. I'm going to begin by doing something slightly naughty and get you to pay attention by aligning myself with the people in the US general election, who are the pollsters who are statistically taking the credit for forecasting the result. As you know, there are a lot of people who I can't imagine on what basis they were doing their forecasting who uh, turned out to have a lot of interest, great as it being a close-run thing. And the things I'm about to talk to you are about, and these comments to do with social investment, are actually based on quite a lot of research into what uh, high-net-worth individuals think of social investment. Having said that, I will... As a precursor, I will say that the amounts of money we're talking about in terms of social investment today are very small. Big Society Capital has just published a report in September, and in 2011, the amount of money going into social investment was £165 million, hardly hardly worthy of one conference, let alone a whole series of them. Having said that, the report is entitled The First £1 billion and is talking about how that number may grow. And the high-risk capital that they're talking about in 2011 is £8 million, but in 2012 they're hoping will be 42. And you can see why the amounts could be exponentially growing, and it's worth taking an interest in. Picking up on a point from Paul, um, I think it's extremely important, as you think about this new area, new philanthropy, to think of it in terms of pots and regard it as a third pot. There's a lot of evidence as you talk to different, um, as you talk to financial advisors, as you talk to high net worth individuals, as you talk to those in the sector, 
that actually we shouldn't really muddle it in with philanthropy in terms of charity. We shouldn't muddle it in with financial investment. It's very confusing. Unless you put it into a separate category and think of your wealth being deployed in a new way with new measures, which are a mixture of social impact and financial return, you cannot get your head around it. And everybody that we have engaged with on this subject goes through a moment of serendipity where they suddenly realise what you are talking about and the fact that if they try and put it in either of the other pots, they get nowhere. I would just like to highlight, if you choose to get engaged in this area, I suggest at the moment you have a reasonable amount of money if you're going to do it in any serious way for the reasons that I was talking about earlier. Because we have found that on the whole, those who can get their head around it and see it clearly is because of the social impact are motivated by the engagement with the social ethical values. That is your motivator for going for social investment. Secondly, you will be motivated by the fact that it's new. You will want to be an early adopter. Clearly, there are many people who shouldn't get involved in new things. You like the fact that your money is going to get recycled. You like the fact that there's going to be evidence for the social impact. You like the fact that in the current economic environment, your money needs to do some things to support society. You like the fact that you're encouraging the organisation to be businesslike, and actually you would quite like there to be a tax incentive and don't quite understand why there isn't. And finally, I would just say that if you're a financial planner, this also applies, because a lot of people to get involved in this sector will want advice. And the planner also will need to put it into a separate pot. And interestingly, what motivates the financial planner to offer this advice? You would think it was entirely objective. But strangely enough, you will find that financial planners who are socially motivated are more likely to advise their clients in this area. And the rest of the financial planners will follow on. That won't necessarily mean inappropriate advice, but that is the first section that will engage. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. So we've had Tim 1, Tim 2, and now we have the Irishman, Tim 3. <laughs> okay. um, my organisation, Alia, is a charitable organisation, and we are an issuer of financial instruments, or bonds. Uh, and we are that almost by mistake. We didn't set out to become an issuer of financial instruments. We set out as an initiative of the Relationships Foundation to tackle societal well-being. Our mission was to get people into work, to create new enterprise, to create an economic society which was self-sufficient, to nurture relationships so that people would love their neighbour, so that people would have a a sense of well-being. And when we went along and asked the people of Sheffield if they'd like to give us uh, some money, some philanthropy, they more or less told us, no, clear off. Uh, We don't want to give you any money. Uh, because we don't think the unemployed are a worthy cause, as a matter of fact. We go back to the definitions under the poor laws and we think that this lot are the idle beggars, that is to say the undeserving poor. And they are to be whipped out of town, as the old poor law, uh, rather than the deserving poor or the impotent poor. And, uh, and it's very hard, in fact, to differentiate or to persuade humankind to differentiate between one class of, of uh, social exclusion and another, particularly if you want their philanthropy when they are being asked for their philanthropy from a thousand other causes which are equally or more attractive, like a donkey sanctuary, I say in jest. But anyway, um, they're very popular. 
we found ourselves having to create a financial instrument on the premise that if we were to give you your money back in five years' time and we could offer you a, an AA-rated recourse so that you were certain that even if you were supporting the undeserving poor, you were going to get your money back anyway, would that change your view? And the answer was, yes, it will. We will support you if we can get our money back and we can be certain. It was that which took us on the journey of issuing bonds. That was in 1999. Where we've got to now, today, is that we are about to be launching in January next year the first retail iteration of a social impact bond. That will be a proper bond. In other words, a financial instrument which will have a, a maturity date. It will have uh, a financial return if you're successful, but it will have your capital coming back to you come what may. In other words, a capital-protected instrument. That will also be uh, slightly liquid insofar as it might be tradable on things like FX and, and Paul's uh, initiative, uh, but it won't be on the, on the London Stock Exchange. The next prize that we're after, the real behavioural change, will come when we get these bonds on the London Stock Exchange, on the uh, order book for retail bonds. That is an existing platform that has already raised well over £2 billion for corporates. We see no reason why it shouldn't raise similar money for the social sector. And that will give choice and democratise choice for people to say that's the cause that I care about and I'm going to buy a bond in that because I can sell it online, electronically, if I don't like it or I can keep it. I can put it in my ISA, I can put it in my SIP, so it will be tax efficient. That is the prize that we're working for in our current mission. Well, thank you very much, panellists. I hope that helps you see where they're coming from. I suspect that uh, some of Hugh's Victorian philanthropists would be rolling in their graves because we're talking about billions now, not just the, uh, not just the miles travelled to visit prisons. Uh, now it's over to you. Um, I'll be taking sort of questions or comments in sort of batches of three or four before I hand over to the panellists. So could I have a show of hands, please, for those who'd like to make a contribution? A lady here. This is a question, um, really, I think, for Anthony and Tim. Would you, would you um, mind just identifying yourself in any affiliation? I, my name is Jill Pellew. I used sure. to be a university fundraiser at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm very struck by the fact that um, this whole idea of the fun and involvement and joy of getting involved in a, in a major way with giving... If donors give the, direct their philanthropy, philanthropic interests towards investment of the kinds that we've had described this, this afternoon by Paul and Anthony and Tim, Tim Jones, where is the actual direct fun and involvement of being involved and seeing what's happening sort of first-hand, as it were, as opposed to just on a bit of paper? Gentleman at the back, Lauren. Yeah, hi. Um, mine is just really, I just would like to know from the panel who is the most influential, high net worth individual that you feel contributed to uh, the UK society over the past, let's say, 100 years? Okay. And the lady at the back there? Um, firstly, I say I'm very much in favour of all publicly funded bodies having to evidence their outcomes and social impact. 
Um, and that actually would include private sector companies who have substantial publicly funded contracts. But I'd just like to raise a few elephants in the room from my perspective. Um, one is the position of big society capital, who have said that they're not interested in giving soft loans. Um, they want a financial return on their investment. So there's an issue about the risk involved. The second one, which must be obvious to most people, um, the public sector funding cuts. Now, where is the return on investment going to come with the bonds if there is no money to pay for them? Do we have to open up new markets? But I do think it's something we all need to talk about. Where is the money coming from? Um, I'm very interested. I follow um, an organization called Markets for Good. And they're looking, uh, American organization, collaborating to actually get all the philanthropy bodies together to be more open and transparent. And one of the issues they're raising is about how social impact is assessed. So, wouldn't disagree with anyone, it's really important, but are we looking at the funders, the, the people financing the bonds, or are we looking at the people who are receiving the service to say, this was good, and will there be conflict in terms of the realities. Um, yeah. Thank you. And actually, I can squeeze one more in, Lauren, the, the woman in the blue jacket just beside you. Oh, um, actually, my headache's spinning. I have so Again, many questions. Again, who, who you sorry, are but, and sorry, any yes. affiliation. Sorry, Bettina Grimblom, um, not just for profit. Um, I, um, in April, wrote an article in the FC with Desmond Tutu, and we were looking at, at issues like this, and... The question, I think if, if I'm going to boil it down to, is this not really a question about how we treat each other? I would agree with you that it's different from philanthropy, um, sorry, that social investment should be separated from philanthropy because um, what we really are looking at is a new way of investing. But at the end of the day, are we actually moving into, I'm thinking loudly, are we actually moving into a new paradigm where it's actually more about how we treat each other? Um, and so, is that what we're talking about? Are we separating social investments from corporate social responsibility? Um, or are we just moving into a new phase where we just have to, as a society, treat each other differently? Um, I'm not... Um, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Thank yeah, you. Okay, thank so we've got, uh, we've got four things for the panelists to get their teeth into. Where's the fun? Who's the best person over the last hundred years? Uh, some of the elephants, particularly big society capital and public sector funding cuts. And uh, is this a, just a new phase in how we treat each other? Who'd like to kick off? Anthony. I, I, I could have a go. Um, I, can't, I can't do them all. The first one, I mean, it's a spot-on point, this one about how do you make it fun, is because... Um, Actually, actually, that's the reason for the engagement. I, I'm interested in this area. And um, it's very likely that if you are involved in some kind of community activity, you will also be interested in these sort of social investments. Um, I, I think that people can think of quite a lot of ways. So, so for example, uh, companies opening themselves up for visits, you know, chief executives' notes and blogs and all of those sorts of things... Um, the way in which the reporting is done. I mean, this links to the point from another question. But there are ways. And people want different things in the reporting. Some people like numbers and sort of like to see that that's... Other people want more case studies. You know, what are your, your best four cases, case studies of last year? 
I mean, I, I think there is real scope for this, especially when you realise that unlike a financial investment, where, you know, we were hearing earlier, you know, that a conflict between investing in, you know, a certain company that seems incompatible with your charitable objective because of the financial driver. Here, the, fi- the real driver is the social good. And you, you want to have regular feedback about that social good. And I think it can be done. I've touched on the impact assessment. I, I suspect there's going to become a little industry in impact assessment build up over time, which may be a good thing or, or not, um, in the sense that you know, you'll get issues of standardisation. I, I think the most important thing will be, will you, do you understand what you're being told as an as a individual? Um, person, and that's more of a behavioural point. I am I comfortable that this has really told me something interesting? Because most of the people, you know, that that that, that is going to be a factor. And then picking up on um, the, the sort of more general point about is it to do with how we treat each other and corporate social responsibility? I think the answer to that leads to some extent yes. I mean, one of the reasons people like this notion of something different in the in the um, area of investment is because it is also going... I suspect it will impact investment and it will impact philanthropy and people are hoping that it will impact both of those in a good way. So, yes. And I've ducked the other question because I don't know the answer. Tim, did you want um, to come back? Yeah, well, fun. Let's start with the fun bit. Um, I wish i got some slides to show you, but <clears throat> suffice to say, I got involved in this organisation from industry in uh, 2001 and I haven't had as so much fun in any job Uh, I don't know whether that's true just because we're getting older. Perhaps it is. But uh, there's huge enjoyment in this sector, and keeping people engaged is about the relationship which you forge with them. And in our case, we have been running um, trips, if you will, uh, a sharabang uh, round Sheffield for Sheffield bondholders to go and look at the projects which their support has funded. And we've done that in the northeast, in in South Wales. We, We, for our part we find that engaging the, the bondholder, the person whose money it is, in the project which their money is supporting is fantastically useful. And it builds up a camaraderie and a, and a relationship, which is our whole mission, of course, amongst the bondholders of, of enjoyment and, and engagement. Uh, and that comes to almost the last point, in a way, which is, well, what about philanthropy and, and are we changing the way our society works? Well, no, we're not. There's going to be a need for philanthropy, come what may, Never mind whether there's a social investment product that could be articulated because some products, projects simply need doing. And I think, for example, of rape crisis centres, I think of Childline, I think of organisations like that. You can't make a social business out of someone's misery, out of the Samaritans, for example. You must always have philanthropy. But that philanthropy comes from the money which people want to give away. What we're talking about is coming from the money that people want to keep. This is the money they want to save. We're simply saying save it in a different place from where you currently save it now. This is the capital you're not giving away. This is the capital you're keeping. Here is a place you can keep it. So the answer to the question, where's the money coming from? There's £750 billion just in personal uh, deposits, ISAs, cash ISAs, uh, fixed-term bank accounts, and so on. Right now, there's another £750 billion sitting on FTSE quoted company balance sheets. Right now, just in retained profits. So that's £1.5 trillion. That's loads of money to go for, and that's money which people are not giving away, but money they want to keep. So let's get an, initi- an initiative which attracts some of that money and does something useful with it. 
Richard, would you like to comment, or should I take some other questions? Um, and well, I, I just wanted to pick up on that. I don't have an individual to celebrate, a high net worth individual to celebrate. Um, I think it would be it would be foolish to try and set somebody up, as I'm sure you know we all know how news cycles work. But one thing I, I the, the the question did prompt me to think about that. The, there does seem to be a lot of animus toward personal wealth that is then used philanthropically in, in our culture, a lot of questioning of it, um, questioning of motives and so on. Whereas the same questions, you know, there's sort of an assumption that once money has been collected by the government, then it's been sort of purified. And I think I, I'd just like to, you know, I'd like to get away from that notion um, you know, another way of thinking of it is if the money was, was made sort of illicitly or Im- improperly long enough ago, then suddenly that becomes p- pure enough money to use. So we could use, you know, Rockefeller's money or Carnegie's money, but we can't use, um, you know, name your favorite or least favorite. <laughs> you know, so, so I think, um, you know, the, the mistrust of of making money uh, can be uh, sort of counterproductive. There, there are other, in other words, there are, there are plenty of mechanisms for regulating that side of things. Um, I think we should be much more in the business of encouraging people to be giving away the fortunes that they've created rather than creating lavish palaces or buying uh, consumable things and celebrating that um, as, as a means to sort of to get the money where it should be, really. Well, thank you. I, I'm just amazed at the transformation of the word bond. A, a few hundred years ago, people were indentured and in bondage and shipped off to various colonies. Now we have a bond bus running around Sheffield joyfully celebrating <laughs> philanthropy. Right. Uh, can I have a show of hands of those who would like to uh, make further comments or questions? If, hold them higher. I won't see you. Lady at the back. Gary here, and gentleman at the back. Great. Start with the woman at the back. Uh, my question is in response to uh, Richard's last statement about wealth creation uh, the, and philanthropy. Do you think there's... For, for philanthropy, from the very rich to actually sort of ring home within um, the, the wider populace, surely we also need to be sort of addressing sort of issues like... Uh, the legislation that has allowed tax avoidance, the problems with offshore banking, with corruption, and the unfortunate link of excessive wealth, offshore banking, and uh, the uh, military uh, marketing of, um, of weapons. Okay. Gentleman up here, Lauren. Um, I have to apologize, Gary Hoffman, for coming here so late due to other things. But uh, two questions, possibly interrelated. One, are there any standard uh, or possibly future metrics that would be considered uh, useful for calling something philanthropic versus uh, business level yields? And second, is there a, uh, a possible tradition or future thought as to how to cope with, um, I call it, having an effect beyond the grave when you set up a foundation in your name as opposed to a public organization with uh, even Gresham style <laughs> that uh, survives over the ages. Okay, and Lauren, the gentleman way at the back there. Sending you all over here. Sorry about that. 
Hi there, um, it's William from the Skinners Company. I was just wondering to what extent um, the panel felt that um, the trustees of endowed charities and foundations right now were, were well, to what extent they are beginning to, to talk to you seriously about um, social investment bonds and investing in those, i.e. with their, you know, their own endowments. Okay. And uh, Bettina, did you want to make a quick comeback? Okay. Um, yes, uh, just shortly this time. My one concern about the whole social investment um, side is, how, is, is the measuring the outcomes. Um, and because at the end of the day, they're only as good as the assumptions we make. And so how, how are you looking at um, countering that in, 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 in the future? And how can you sell that to someone trying to invest? Because I sort of have two hats on, and if I sit at the wealth manager you just can't get access to your products because they cannot sell it to you. Thanks. Okay, so tax avoidance offshore, metrics on philanthropy and foundations. Uh, are real trustees talking about uh, using their endowments this way? And uh, how do we question some of our assumptions? Um, can, I, can I sort of reverse the order? Richard, do you want to make a quick comment? Sure. So um, on, on this question of... I, mean, I think if I understand the question, the, the suggestion is that a lot of people are making a lot of money through illicit means or, or keeping their money from uh, taxes and then perhaps um, giving them philanthropically as a means of, of generating great uh, glow. Um, the, the problem is that there is a, a worldwide problem with tax avoidance. The offshore banking system has created a global and unclean economy. And, of course, we, we now have a class of super-rich oligarchs um, that, you know, particularly with sort of incidences like sort of Philip Green's uh, sidelining of, of money, that there is, and, a, and a growing divide between rich and poor that, going back to the original speakers of... Uh, talk about the early years of, of philanthropy that um, that the the image of the philanthropist is not necessarily a good one that it that there are ulterior uh, reasons to to give that they're, they're about sort of cleaning a public image about salving the conscience of somebody who's made a lot of money even if you've made it your business in um, you know, something that is relatively benign. That the sort of the, the financial systems are not that clean, so all money is dirty money. How do we sort of balance that with you know actual genuine motiv motivations to give? Okay, thank you, thank you for the clarification, Richard. Back to you. Okay, well, I mean that that's a, it's clearly a very big question. I think if if all money is dirty, then I would just argue that public money is dirty as well. I mean, one of the experiences I had when I used to work for WWF is. You know, the, as a conservation organization, it was always very concerned about where the sources of funds were coming from for various things. And um, particular suspicion of extractive industries for, the obvious, for obvious reasons. And, um, you know, and yet one of the biggest funders, sort of legitimate funders of conservation work globally, is the government of Norway. Well, Norway's economy is based on extraction of oil and gas. So, and yet, because it's a government that's dispensing, that's using its wealth in a much more uh, productive and constructive way than, say, some of the other oil-dependent economies, um, there, 
you know, it's, it's acceptable to, to take that public money, but it might not be acceptable to take that money from an oil company, let's say. Um, so I think you have to be really careful of that. Another instance, again, from the WWF experience is the, the then CEO of WWF Sweden, we were having a conversation about this, he said, yes, well, we looked very carefully about, at all our sources of income for, to, to, for precisely this reason, look at the, the risks. And he said the, the one that was most uh, unpleasant was the government of Sweden, of course, because of arms manufacture in, in, in other, and other things. If you start looking at every penny as to determine whether it's clean, you won't ever find a satisfactory level of cleanliness. It's very different from saying you don't launder money, you don't take money that's, uh, you know, you must have very strict principles that evaluate donations that are coming to you, especially large donations and what you do with them. But it's, I think it's, uh, you've got to make that dis- the distinction between that and all money is dirty. It's always interesting to me <coughs> the expression "money has uh, no smell." Uh, Pecunia non olet is actually Vespasian, who was uh, lecturing his son um, on the fact that the urinal taxes in ancient Rome were still a legitimate source of money, uh, because his son felt he was far above all of that. Interesting, um, Tim. Um, well, uh, it might help if we talked as well about the metrics, um, okay. the endowment, and maybe uh, measuring some of these outcomes. Uh, well, t- measuring some of the outcomes of the metrics, in a, in a sense, there's a bit of common ground there. Uh, there's an organization in New York called the Global Impact Investing Network, GIN, and that has done a lot of work at look, looking at corporate responsibility and what are the outcomes, if you like, philanthropic and others, of an organization to measure on a, on a set, me- set of matrices how they perform. And there's a body, I think it's called B-Plan, which is a, a certification program which you can get if you apply. So there are companies that go through that process and investors who then come and seek those companies as a purposeful uh, source of their ethical investment screening. So that's, that's the thing that's going on now. In the UK, there is something called the Social Return on Investment Movement, SROI. There's a website called SROI that you can go and look at. And these are established mechanisms or audit mechanisms of looking at social outcomes, of looking at certifiable uh, methodologies for working out what the proper value of a social outcome might be. But to be more pragmatic, uh, where, where we are is about saying to organisations which wish to borrow money and they want to finance, for example, a helicopter because you're an air ambulance trust, you're, you're the air ambulance trust, you need a new helicopter. Traditionally, you would go and borrow the money from a bank or a higher purchase business and you might pay somewhere between 8 and 13% currently for that money. What we are saying is, well, you could issue a social bond on the stock exchange and you would have to pay what people wanted as a return, and that would be less than 5% currently. So for 5%, we as a charity could raise you the money, and the only people that are suffering are the other people who would have supplied the money, which is the banking sector. So you're simply using the money in a more efficient way, and therefore you can find the helicopter 24 hours rather than 12 hours, things like that. These are very practical, very simple things that will change the behaviour and establish the marketplace, where all sorts of derivations can then come through as behaviour shifts going forward. Um, I'll just pick up on this point about making it something sort of different, which I I think... um, I I, I don't know whether it's a naming issue. I think it is partly a naming issue, and it is therefore very important that it sort of has a separate name when you deploy your wealth in this way. 
Um, and it's, it, this is interlinked with the, the, this issue, which I can't say much more on to do with the measurement, other than looking at it from a behavioural point of view. Why do you want this measurement? And it, it, it's very much to do with... With the charity, you do tend to give the money away and have some notion of how the money is being used. With this, you are looking for your money to be recycled and at the same time to have done the social good. And this causes a dilemma for the reporting back because it's not necessarily a sort of an accounting-type reporting, I, I think, that you are looking for here because you may be financing some kind of new approach in the area. And what you're wanting is an understanding of how that new approach is yielding a result. Now, when you have uh, invested in an innovative company, strangely enough, you probably aren't really that interested in how the innovation is working. You are interested in how the future profit is going to work because it's part of your pension fund or something, and you really do want... You know, it's in that high-risk area, but you're expecting maybe a very big return. But what you're wanting to understand is you've invested in something that, OK, you may get your money back or most of your money back, but also it's done some social good in an interesting way. And you want a sense of how it's done that. And I think that's almost as an important part of the, the feedback as, as the quantitative SORI. I'm not saying these are unimportant, but I think it needs to be carefully thought through. OK. Um, I'm, I'm going to... Uh move to a, sort of a final question from me for the panelists, a warning to the three of you, but uh, I, I just wanted to share a funny story uh, which I think relates to the woman's uh, comment back there. A number of years ago I went to a function run by the Bank of England on business and ethics and we had three companies there, a defense company, uh, a tobacco company uh, based in Woking, <laughs> which I think identifies that one fairly carefully as something raised before, uh, BAT, and finally the co-op and you would have thought that uh, as each one of them got up and spoke about ethics that it was a slam dunk, but it wasn't. Uh, the defense company got up and made a kind of a pitiful, well, people want to kill each other and that's why we, we help them. Um, uh, BAT said it was about choice, which I thought was quite interesting. They said, you know, we, we have choice. It's going to happen anyway. We provide that choice. So they, they tried to finesse that and I thought quite well. But you thought as the co-op woman got up last that she would obviously get it. And the question she absolutely flubbed was uh, people saying to her, well, excuse me, but um, the way that you're doing this investment under proper risk theory, uh, do you declare that these investments are going to achieve a lower return? Oh, well, we wouldn't do that because if we declared that, people wouldn't invest in them. So it was a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting paradox there that I found. Uh, the reason for that is I'm struck. Um, I'd like to ask the three of them, pretend that um, I am a... Uh, a newbie. All the discussion so far has been about blending investment and social impact. That, that this seems to be the wave of the future. Well, if it is, I'm a bit torn. Goodhart's law says that when something uh, ceases to be a measure and becomes a performance indicator, it, it then becomes a very poor measure. And meanwhile, I'm also struck with a man with, you know, one watch knows the time, a man with two watches is never sure. And so we have this problem here <laughs> of... Uh, money on the one hand and kind of social impact on the other. Pretend I'm actually uh, one of the Skinner's uh, gentlemen's uh, great, great endowment people. I'm confused. Am I, is this just a fudge? And I'd like to turn to Anthony first. Um, actually, I don't think it is a fudge. Um, and the re reason I think, and, and I, I'm sorry to sound like a, a crack record, is that you've got to think about it as being something different. And the reason it isn't a fudge is because when you 
uh, I'll use socially invested, okay? You didn't invest because clearly you did that to optimise the return on your portfolio. You've socially invested. You were looking for two things to be achieved. You were looking for some kind of feedback on what was to happen financially, a proportion of your money to be returned or a modest return. And also you were looking for some kind of social uh, result. And I, I don't think that is a fudge. It's just different. Richard? Well, uh, so I'm going to defer as to whether it's a fudge, but it, it occurs to me, I mean, I, I don't think there should... I agree that there should be separation. I don't think there should be competition. The last thing one would wish to promote is, oh, well, don't worry about your charitable or philanthropic area. You can just sort of play safe and, and you know, let... You let your capital be used efficiently in a, in a social area. But um, I, think, I think it's important to sort of understand you know, the, the broader context and maybe the, the, the higher aspiration, and I'm not an expert in that, in that sector, but if, if this is a step, uh, I mean, I, I would love to see it. I'd love to hear my, my colleagues on the panel talk about this as a step to a different economy, that you know, this is just a transition, and these are the baby steps toward a transition, where actually we're thinking much more broadly about how we're using our money as a society, what we're investing in, what are the effects of it, and what are the consequences that are picked up by the individual or by the enterprise, and what are the effects which have to be picked up by the society as a result. So I, I'd love to hear it develop in that way. I have no idea if that's the trajectory, but that's what I, I, I'd like to see. That's very interesting. I, I, in part, think the answer to the question is that society, the economy is changing. That is, that is certainly the case. What it will become what, and what historians will in future call the period we are now going through, who knows. But I think probably because of social media and, and awareness, silo thinking, as I like to call it, is changing. The idea that you had your investment business in one pot and you maximised it and you got all the money you could from it and you had your philanthropic business or your love your neighbour or your care about the planet or whatever it might be that for you is the important part of, of caring about something in another pot and twain never meet. I think those days are going and going quite quickly. So I think the answer to your question is you will want to do both. Many, many people already want to keep their capital somewhere that isn't a bank because banks have disadvantaged themselves because of their uh, perceived, anyway, behaviour. Uh, Co-ops are an alternative which are attractive to some, although there is a perception that sometimes a woolly cardigan isn't the best investment manager. Uh, now, that may or may not be the case. I tend to wear a tie when I come to these events, but a woolly cardigan... Uh, the, the, my point is there are going to be horses for courses, but I think the silos are emerging and we are moving towards a more collective decision-making process. Well, folks, I think that's a really nice note on which to end. In these days of monetary gloom, our three panelists seem to concur that we might be moving to a newer, richer, more nuanced society, blending what we really want to achieve with our money and perhaps doing it in a joyful and maybe even an addictive way which I think is a nice way to close this. Um, before I hand back to uh, Professor Connell to close, uh, may I ask you to thank our panelists in the usual way. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs>